I was raised to believe that the Bible defines good and evil for us within its pages. But when we stop and examine this idea using the Bible, we discover something else. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees. A tree that would bring life to all who ate of its fruit, and a tree that brought death. And it was the second tree, the tree that resulted in death, that contained the knowledge of good and evil. Have we been deceived by the serpent who is trying to get us to eat of the second tree? Is the Bible really trying to define good and evil for us? Let's take a step back. Let's run an experiment. Instead of seeking to define good and evil, let's instead ask the question of the trees. Let's attempt to define life and death, but to do so, we must first seek it out. So join us as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Hello everyone, welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we play detective with the stories of the Bible. For the past month and a half, we've been following the story of Joseph. We've been reading of his exploits from being sold as a slave to being raised to a prominent position, then busted back down to worse than a slave, not just a slave, but a slave prisoner, and then raised once again to the position of the second most powerful man in the world. Now these last few chapters could be called the rise and the fall of the reputation and power of Joseph. And last week, Joseph's brothers, they re-entered the narrative as they came to Egypt to purchase food from the only people in the world who had food. And Joseph is now the man in charge. And when his brothers arrive, Joseph does not treat them very well. In fact, Joseph begins the process of making his brothers experience a small part of what he had gone through since they had sold him. He first levels a false accusation at them and says, You are spies coming to spy out the land. And then he uses the false accusation as the basis of his charge against them to stick them in prison, or at least under guard for a few days. Now, it's my belief that he is truly trying to make them feel the shame that he was steeped in for so many years. He's bringing them low and putting them in a state of fear in order to test their true motives. Because, frankly, nothing reveals a person's true nature more accurately than their instantaneous reactions when they're put in a fearful position. Well, this week the brothers are released and they're sent home minus one with a message. Don't come back without your brother. And thus begins a test that Joseph has created for his brothers. Can he trust them? Should he trust them? Have they changed? How far will they go to protect their honor? Will they sell out one another to save their own skins? Do they even care about their father's life, his wishes, or his commands? All these things that had been answered in the negative in the past. Because, frankly, the sons of Jacob, they were awful people in the very beginning. The boys only cared about themselves and their own position in matters of honor. It was me against my brother, my brother and I against our brothers, and our family against the world. And the fact is that each of the brothers that we have heard of up to this point, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, they've each demonstrated at one time or another that they were willing to go to great and destructive lengths to protect their own honor. And so, a test is needed, not just for Joseph's sake, but for our sake as well, for we have seen nothing of these brothers but Judah since Joseph was sent away. The picture that we've been given of them is not a pretty picture. In this test, there's a lot revealed about how the brothers have changed, and the fact is that the majority of the test that is coming in the next few weeks 
is steeped in this honor-shame dynamic, and without at least a minimum of honor-shame lens to view the story through, we're going to miss the majority of it. Um, and there's several teachings I've done in the past that really dig into the idea of honor versus shame. I don't know the exact episode numbers at this point, but the one about Noah and his tent, and the one about Dina, or what we commonly refer to as the rape of Dina, both deal with honor and shame in a deeper way. And without understanding that, at least a little bit, so much of what's happening in this latter part of Genesis will be completely missed. Add to this that the boys, they return home this week, and we get to see Jacob once again. We get to catch a glimpse of the fallout that the loss of Joseph has caused to the man, Israel. And as well, we will catch a glimpse of the old family dynamic in these interactions, and the final decision that Jacob must make that's oh so similar to the one that his grandfather, Avraham, also had to make. These old challenges, these old tests, these old wounds... They're going to be explored in a lot of various ways this week and in the upcoming weeks. The topics of favoritism, honor, firstborn status, brotherly love, familial love, blessing, curse, righteousness, and more. They're going to be a huge part of what we'll be looking at for the next few weeks. Well, this week, the boys, they simply make it home and then back to Egypt. Next week, they're going to have a banquet and then leave. And the goblet's going to be found. And the following week, we're going to read of Judah's defense of Benjamin as they're reconciled. And then they're going to receive their father's blessing. This exchange of reconciliation is as long as nearly everything else we've read about these men. And I believe that everything that we are shown in these next few weeks of the text will provide a commentary on all that has come before and give us a solid picture of the good half of the sons of Israel. So without further explanation, let's read this week's passage and then contemplate the growth that this narrative alone reveals in the sons of Jacob. Genesis 42, verse 18 through 43, verse 23. Now Yosef said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear Elohim. If you are trustworthy, that one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, and you, go, bring grain for the scarcity of food of your houses. And bring your youngest brother to me, and let your words be confirmed, and you do not die. And so they did. And they said to each other, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother, for we saw the distress of his life when he pleaded with us, yet we did not listen. That is why his distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not speak to you, saying, Do not sin against the boy? And you would not listen, and see his blood is now required of us. And they did not know that Yosef understood them, for he spoke to them through an interpreter. And he turned himself away from them, and wept, and came back to them, and spoke to them, and took Shimon from them, and bound him before their eyes. And Yosef commanded, and they filled their sacks with grain, also to put back every man's silver in his sack, and to give them food for the journey, and thus it was done for them. So they loaded their donkeys with their grain, and went from there. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his silver, for there it was in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My silver has been returned, and there it is in my sack. And their hearts sank, and they were afraid, saying to each other, What is this that Elohim has done to us? So they came to Yaakov their father in the land of Canaan, and reported to him all that befell them, saying, The man, the master of the land, spoke to us harshly, and took us for spies of the land. But we said to him, We are trustworthy, we are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. 
one is no more and the youngest is today with our father in the land of canaan and the man the master of the land said to us by this i know that you are trustworthy leave one of your brothers here with me and take food for the scarcity of food of your household and go and bring your youngest brother to me then i know that you are not spies but that you are trustworthy i give your brother to you and you move about in the land and it came to be as they emptied their sacks that look the bundle of each man's silver was in his sack and when they and their father saw the bundles of silver they were afraid and yaakov their father said to them you have bereaved me yosef is no more and shimon is no more and you would take benjamin all this is against me so raven spoke to his father saying take the lives of my two sons if i do not bring him back to you put him in my hands and i myself bring him back to you but he said my son is not going down with you for his brother is dead and he is left alone if any harm should come to him along the way which you go then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to sheol but the scarcity of food was severe in the land and it came to be when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought from mitzrayim that their father said to them go back and buy us a little food but yehuda spoke to him saying the man vehemently warned us saying you do not see my face unless your brother is with you if you let your brother go with us we go down to buy you food but if you do not let him go we do not go down because the man said to us you do not see my face unless your brother is with you and Israel said why did you do evil to me and inform the man that you had another brother and they said the man kept asking about us and our relatives saying is your father alive have you another brother and we informed him according to these words how could we know that he would say bring your brother down and Yehuda said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and let us arise, and go, and live, and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I myself shall stand guarantee for him. From my hand you are to require him. If I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not delayed truly by now, we could have returned the second time. And the father of Israel said to them, If so, then do this. Take some of the best fruit of the land in your vessels and bring a present down for the man, a little balm and a little honey, spices and myrrh and nuts and almonds. And take double silver in your hand and take back in your hand the silver that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. It could have been a mistake. And take your brother and arise and go back to the man. And El Shaddai give you compassion before the man so that he shall release your other brother and Benjamin. And I, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. And the men took that present and Benjamin and they took double the amount of silver in their hand and arose and went down to Mitzrayim and stood before Yosef. And Yosef saw Benjamin with them and said to the one over his house, Bring the men home and make a great slaughter and prepare, for these men are to eat with me at noon. And the man did as Yosef said, and the man brought the men to Yosef's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Yosef's house, and they said, It is because of the silver which was put back in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, to throw himself upon us, and fall upon us, and to take us as slaves, our donkeys too. So they came near to the man over the house of Yosef, and spoke to him at the door of the house, and said, O oh my master, we indeed came down the first time to buy food, but it came to be when we came to the lodging place, that we opened our sacks, and saw each man's silver in the mouth of his sack, our silver in its weight, and we have brought it back in our hand, and we have brought down other silver in our hands to buy food. We do not know who put our silver in our sacks. But he said, Peace be with you. Do not be afraid. Your Elohim and the Elohim of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. Your silver had come to me. And he brought Shimon out to them. So the text of this Parsha contains in it a very interesting feature. 
The story begins with Joseph coming to his brothers after releasing them from prison, and he presents them with something to think about. Now, when he had put them in prison, he had told them that only one was going to be allowed to go home, and that nine of them would remain behind. So as Joseph released them from prison, he announces, Do this and live, for I fear Elohim. Now, Elohim, the Hebrew word for God. We have to remember that in the Hebrew, there's no distinction between a capital G God and a lowercase g God, or in this case, a capital E Elohim and a lowercase e Elohim. So what the brothers would have heard at this was that this unknown man feared the gods. Why shouldn't he? He's rich and powerful. He's the son-in-law of the great priest of On. And if you remember back to last week, we spoke about the narrative trope that scripture uses throughout this reversal of fortunes. Joseph's fortunes were reversed as he went from the next to the lowest of the low to the next to the greatest of the great. And in a single day, his fortunes were reversed. And for that matter, the fortunes of all mankind were reversed in that moment. And by the end of the text from last week, the fortunes of Joseph's brothers had been reversed as well. They had gone from free men in a house of honor to prisoners of a strange and foreign official. Well, this week as the text opens, a reversal is once again announced. Rather than only one brother being sent home, instead, only one brother would remain in prison. One brother. Now, if the sons of Jacob were the same men that they had been before, the loss of one brother to a prison cell, it's not that big a deal if it means that they get to get away and save their own skin. This is a tension that underlies the entirety of these next few weeks. And the only way to release this brother that's being held captive, they have to bring the one brother that their father loves more than all of the others. They have to go home, convince their father to allow Benjamin to leave his side with them, and then bring him to Egypt, to Joseph, and let him see if they treat him the way that they treated Joseph. Now, the brothers re respond in a way that's surprising to Joseph. They explicitly say in front of him, without expecting that he would be understanding, we're being punished for the evil that we did to Joseph. This, this is what we deserve. Now, is it possible that the humility that had taken Joseph so many multiple years to arrive at, the, the thought that I deserve nothing better than this prison, that his brothers had arrived at in only a few days? Why is that? Why did they come to this conclusion so quickly? It's because they knew they were guilty. They knew that they deserved to be punished. And apparently, they hadn't yet received that punishment other than their own conscience. Reuben then reveals his own part of the sale. I, I told you not to harm him. Now we're all in trouble because of what you guys did. Joseph, Joseph didn't know this information. He did not know that there was a disagreement among the brothers as to what his fate might have been. For everything he knew, they were all in on it together. The fact that not all of his brothers wanted him dead, that Reuben at least tried to defend him, it softens him some. And so Joseph takes Simeon the second oldest. Reuben has already at least passed part of Joseph's test by declaring his intent to return Joseph to his father. He wasn't in on it from the beginning. He, he becomes an ally to Joseph to a point. So Reuben gets to go home because Joseph knows that he will at least try to do the right thing by Benjamin and by Jacob. 
And so Joseph sends them home with every incentive that they need to stay there and never come back. He gives them all of the food that they could want for the foreseeable future. They could have gone somewhere else after this. They, they could have perhaps gone to Assyria to try to find food or to Persia. He gave them the food for the road as they traveled. He put their silver back in their sacks to cause them to be afraid of returning for the possibility of being accused of stealing when they came back. He's giving them every opportunity to betray Simeon. He gives them this option. You can lose another brother and save your own skins. I mean, is Simeon really worth it? The possibility of losing Benjamin, is it worth it? You know, maybe it's best to just stay home and forget about it. Forget about Simeon. Leave him behind. You've done it before. Well, the boys, they get home and they tell Jacob what's happened. And how is it that Jacob responds? Jacob responds as if Simeon's already dead. He tells them, you were left alone with Joseph and now he is gone. And you were left alone with Simeon and now he is gone as well. And you want me to trust you with Benjamin? This last reminder that I have of my precious Rachel? Not going to happen. And then he laments. He cries out as if the world itself were conspiring against him. And then Reuben. Poor idiot firstborn Reuben. If my contention is correct, that Reuben had been trying to get back in the good graces of his father after the failed coup, and that his attempt to bring Joseph back was a calculated response designed to do such a thing, then what Reuben suggests makes a weird kind of sense. He says, Father, entrust Benjamin to me, and I will return him. And if I fail, then you can kill my sons, so that I will feel the same despair that you feel at the loss of your own son. That's a stupid thing. Jacob's going to jump up and down and say, yes, let me kill my grandchildren. Jacob, though, he sees something else going on here, and his response calls this out. He says, you're trying to kill me. You're trying to get me and my chosen heir out of the way for your own benefit. You would take Benjamin, and you would kill him, and in so doing, you would kill me. And in doing, you might succeed in finally taking what you attempted to take before through a coup. You might seize leadership of the family if I let you do that. All it's going to cost you is your own sons. Is this how far you're willing to go to get this, Reuben? Is this how far you're willing to go to get power? And besides, it's an offer that only an idiot would take. Uh, why would Jacob agree to allow his grandsons to be killed if his son is killed? And he would get this honor himself, killing his grandsons, or, or worse yet, watching his son butcher his grandsons? <laughs> no, thank you, Reuben. You are as you have always been. You're ambitious, but you're not all that bright. No one is going back. That's final. That's Jacob's final decision. Simeon is gone. Everyone simply accept it. But, but the famine doesn't let up. And Jacob's family, they don't know how long this famine's going to last. Only, only Pharaoh and Joseph and perhaps the people of Egypt know how long the famine's going to last. Now, perhaps it was their hope to get one load of food and pray. Next season, surely the rains will come. God won't abandon us completely. Maybe the famine will pass and we'll be able to work out a way to get Simeon back. Or maybe we can just leave him there to rot. 
in the end, the famine goes on too long, and they have to do something to get food. And so Jacob comes to them once again after some time has passed, and he says, go back and buy food. The sons, though, they're saying, this isn't going to happen, not without Benjamin. If we don't take Benjamin, we're getting nothing. And then Jacob says, why did you even tell them about Benjamin? You have done evil to me by doing so. And they respond, look, the guy asked about our family. How are we to know he'd demand that Benjamin actually be brought here? And then we see something in Judah. It's something that recommends him for the role that he later gets of leadership of his brothers. He steps into this role of leader and takes on the responsibility. Now, it's been no secret that Joseph and Benjamin were like a family unto themselves. They were unique and they were special in their father's eyes. The other brothers, though, the sons of Leah, the sons of the concubines, they had leaders among them. But what were those first three options? There was Reuben, the the boy bent on power and authority, the one who might do anything if he thought that it might secure his position as leader. Simeon and Levi? Well, Simeon's gone. And besides, both he and Levi, they'd already demonstrated that they would resort to violence before diplomacy. And if they were left in charge, the ones who returned would be at war with the entirety of Egypt. But Judah, though. Judah proposed the idea of selling Joseph, not the moral thing to do, but perhaps the necessary thing to do for the sake of Joseph. Judah had then learned his lesson about keeping his word and the value of his children. He himself had held his son back from doing his duty, from doing what needed to be done for the sake of saving his son's life. Judah had, in fact, faced this exact same decision at one time. Does he do what must be done and perhaps lose another child? Or does he protect the child regardless of the consequences and what it means to others? Well, this time Judah decides that he will do what must be done, regardless of the consequences, and the results will be fully upon his head. And that is true leadership. And so Judah steps up. He says, I will take responsibility for Benjamin. I will bear the shame and the guilt if he is not returned. At this point, he's claiming, I am the leader of the family. And should I fail, you can pass me over for the next son in line. In putting himself in this position, Judah has nothing to gain, but he could lose everything. He could lose his father, he could lose his place as the inheritor, he could lose all of his honor in the family, and he could open up a confusing mess of succession. And Jacob agrees to this, but he realizes that there are still challenges to face. And so he tells them, go with gifts, take the riches of this land, not the ideal staple of grain, but they do still have nuts and spices and honey, some very special treats. And he tells them to make sure to take double the silver because they don't want to be accused of stealing the grain the last time. Joseph had set obstacles before them to give them every reason to stay away. And now that the decision has come to return, each of these obstacles must be addressed. And then Jacob does all that he can do. He prays, El Shaddai show you compassion before this man because it's in his hands now. And he says, if I am bereaved, I am bereaved. Now, I want to take a second here and explore for a moment a theme that's being expressed here in the text, because we've seen this story before. A story of a father who had a favored and unique son, 
And that father is asked to sacrifice his son, to give him up, to allow him to escape hands off. And the fate of the son is now left in the hands of God. In a loose way, Jacob is being put through his own version of the Akedah, the sacrifice of Isaac. He's being questioned, do you love your favored son more than you love the rest of your family? Do you love your son more than you love God? Do you trust God to do what is good for you and your family? Or are you going to grasp a hold of what little you have, believing that you can prevent harm by virtue of your mere presence? Do you truly believe that you are the only one who can bring or end life? Or do you do you know another who has that title? Rather, instead of grasping hold, give him over fully to God and let him do what's best for everyone. And if that means personal sorrow, so be it. Personal sorrow is minor in the grand scheme of things. And in this way, Joseph has tested his father first by simply making this request. He's asking Jacob, do you truly trust God? Or has your belief in your God turned simply to lip service because of the losses that you've experienced since you arrived back in the land? Because while Jacob was outside of the land of Canaan, God blessed him. He gained wives, he gained children, he gained flocks, he gained riches, he looked blessed. And the only trouble that came to him was from Laban, his his father-in-law and his sons and their friends. However, since coming back into the land of Canaan, he's had his sons destroy a city and bring great shame upon his household. His daughter has become an outcast when it comes to a marital connection. His favored wife has died. His oldest son has attempted a coup with his concubine. His favored son has died. Then his second wife has died. And now his entire family is in danger from this famine. And Simeon has been taken from him. But God bless Jacob, right? He was told so. He had his name changed. He wrestled with God and won. And since then, it's been shame, loss, sorrow, and defeat. Nothing has gone well. Nothing has gone right for Jacob. Just one loss after another since he returned to the land of Canaan. Where is God in this? And in this place of loss, God says, Trust me. Trust me. I have your best interest in mind. Take this chance in faith, and you will be raised back up. Now, interestingly enough for Jacob, he will only be raised back up to a place of obvious blessing and honor once he's back out of the land again, when he leaves it of his own accord, because it's not his yet. But that's a topic for another day. So why do I bring this up? Why have I made this tour? Because this week, it's Jacob that's being tested more than the others. It's Jacob that's the one that's grasping hold of this last reminder of Rachel. A blessing has not turned out the way that Jacob imagined it, and I think that's the case for many of us. Being blessed and chosen by God means testing and hardship. It may mean that you lose people or things or position or honor. And this is something we talked about back in Genesis 25, but that I want to highlight in this passage because it's so visible in this text as well. And that's the world's idea of definition and of blessing 
is not the same as God's definition. Was Jacob actually blessed while in Canaan? Yes, he was. His God protected him from those who sought to destroy him. His son was sent before him to prepare a place for him to go when the land turned against him. His son was sent before him not only to bless and to raise Israel, but in order to bless the entire world. Now, did Jacob himself feel blessed? I don't think he did. I think he felt only grief and distress and the weight of the hardship that was on his shoulder. And yet it was during all of this that God was working in the background to bless him beyond measure. And my question is, how well do we handle similar hardship? Do we count it a blessing when we face trials of all kinds? Or do we rail and rant and get angry and blame God and others for what's happened to us? Because Jacob tosses around a lot of blame in these chapters. He says, you have bereaved me in 42.36. You have done this evil to me in chapter 43, verse 6. He's tossing blame on everyone else. It's your fault that I'm experiencing this difficulty. Completely without sight to recognize that it is this hardship that will provide the comfort and the joy that he is to get for the remainder of his life. His retirement is being prepared through his loss. And his redemption is coming. All he has to do is trust one last time. He's been backed into a corner on the trust front. In the face of the world looking awful, do you continue to trust? And so continuing on, the brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin and their party. And Joseph somehow spots them coming. And so he tells his servants to bring them to his house for a lunch to prepare a large banquet. And this obviously causes the brothers to fear. Why wouldn't it? I mean, what's going on? In fact, that's been the question since the very beginning. What's going on? Why is this happening? And so they guess, well, it must be because he thinks that we stole that grain earlier. And now he's taking us all to be slaves, from prisoner to slave. See the pattern? And he's going to take our donkeys too! <laughs> Now, I have no proof for this, but I think that that phrase in our donkeys too, it's used throughout scripture in several places and ways. And I believe it to be an idiom similar to our own and the kitchen sink. So they think that the problem has to do with the money that was returned. And so as they're being led to Joseph's house, they tell their story and they offer to pay for the previous load. And the man responds, don't worry, your money came to me. Your God and the God of your fathers has blessed you. And here the narrative ends for the week. The brothers are arriving at the palace of this foreign official, and they're being led into what? They don't know. And you'll find that for the next few weeks, as this trial unfolds, it's broken up very episodic. And each week, including the last few, the breaks have been very episodic. So let's examine this week's episode. So when I began, I spoke of a feature that this Parsha has that I never explained what it was. Because it ends here in that very last verse. And once again, we find a mirror in this narrative, similar to what we usually find. Last week, it was the congruence of release from prison and being put into prison. Well, the Parsha opened this week with Joseph declaring, I fear Elohim. And the Parsha ends with Joseph's servant saying, Your Elohim has blessed you. 
Both statements, absolutely true. Both statements, mere platitudes to the brothers. They still don't get it, and frankly, why should they? Joseph is a foreigner. There's no thought in their mind that he might be their long-lost brother. So what if he's a religious dude? I hear the religion around here is quite wacky. And once again, as I recognize this, I ask myself, how often do I do this? How often do I treat statements of others who are different than me or who look different than me simply bounce off my ears as a mere platitude? Not that the statement is false, but how does this help me in this place? How does it help the brothers that Joseph fears the gods? And the silver? What? The, the brothers were definitely getting mixed signals throughout. They were in prison. They had a brother stolen from them. They're given the impossible command. And then their money is still there. And in chapter 42, verse 28, the brothers are trying to figure this out. What is Elohim doing to us? There's so many mixed signals. Can we trust him? We sold Joseph for silver. We made him a slave. And now we ourselves have been made prisoners. And we have our silver back? The silver. And it's something that's bothered me for a long time. Why did Joseph give them the silver back? Was, was it simply Joseph saying, You're my family. You don't have to pay. I've heard it's deep that way. That doesn't sit right with me. Was it only what I mentioned earlier, that Joseph was giving them another reason to stay home? Or was this a calculated move designed to get their attention? Now, if we look through these chapters, we will discover something missing from these chapters in Egypt. There is no mention of Hashem, only a mention of Elohim. And three times in this text, and where are those three times? It's initially when Joseph lets them out, I fear Elohim. When they find the money in their sacks, what is Elohim doing to us? And when they return to Egypt, the Elohim of your fathers has blessed you. I believe that Joseph gave them the money to confirm to them that what was going on was a punishment for their earlier transgression against him. They had recognized that they were suffering for his sake immediately. And so he simply helps them along with that train of thought. Give up your brother. Gain some silver. And here they are. They've just lost Simeon, and now their money is back. This must be a sign from God that he is punishing us for our transgression. This foreign man, when he says that God is blessing you, what must have gone through their heads? Or is he cursing us? He's giving us the money that we wanted when we were younger, and he's doing so at the cost of our family members. Again, this entire episode, it's a test of the brothers to see if they've changed from who they used to be into the people that they need to be in order to live in harmony with the Egyptians. But the test this time, it's not one that's directly from God. It's a test that was designed and implemented by Joseph. He is testing his brothers to determine their intentions. He is attempting to discover if they have changed. He wants to get even, but I think that even more than that, he wants to be reconciled if not to his ten brothers, at least to his father and his brother Benjamin. And this introduces a topic that will lay over the entire set of tests that Joseph is enacting. Brotherly love and unity. The unity that this family must have in order to face the world. 
if we take a brother and we sell them out to the world because we don't like them, because they're mean to us, because they've done us evil, are we any better than the brothers of Joseph? Ephesians 4, 1 through 6 says, I call upon you, therefore, I, a prisoner of the master, to walk worthily of the calling with which you are called, with all humility and meekness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, being eager to guard the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace, one body and one spirit, as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one master, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. We, like the family of Jacob, we are brothers together and we are unified by one faith, one baptism, and one God who is the Father of all. And it takes humility, meekness, and patience to bear with each other. Without these, we destroy each other. Without these, we'll sell each other out to our enemies. We'll cast each other out to the world and allow others to fend for themselves in shame. And when we do this, we become no better than the brothers of Joseph if we sink this far. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, it says, For the rest, brothers, rejoice, be made whole, seek restoration, be encouraged and be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. He's saying, seek unity within the body, not a unity of interpretation. That's impossible. But seek unity under the one banner, the one thing that unites us. Just like the brothers of Joseph, different mothers, different statuses, even different levels of favor from the Father. But they forgot the one thing that united them. Their father. Their family bond. We too, we must remember this. We are united and bound together as a family, for better or worse, in all things. So let us learn to be humble before each other. To seek unity above seeking being right. To be made into a whole and functioning body for our Messiah to work in and through. This is what Joseph is doing in this and in the upcoming texts. He's ensuring that all of his brothers have decided to unify behind the thing that unites them. Their father and their family bond that was created because of him. And he's challenging them to discard the things that might separate them their mothers, their past, their pride, their personal thoughts on how the world works, their histories, and their current circumstances. In the past, the brothers were unable to do this. Now, though, now there's another chance. There's another test, another opportunity to reconcile the brothers together in the unity of their father. We ourselves, we're in the midst of this opportunity. We're being given the chance to learn this lesson. Unity under the one thing that matters. And that's unity under our Messiah as King. Will others obey him perfectly? No, but then neither will we. And that's the key. We have to allow our imperfect nature to drive us together with others of imperfect nature under the one thing that can make us perfect and clean our Father, our Savior, our Messiah, and His Kingdom. And with this focus driving us towards each other, 
we'll discover that the process of seeking life requires community. It requires humility and allowing others to be themselves, but not letting that stop us from being united in Him. And so I appeal to you, dear listeners, seek life in all that you do. Seek community and humility. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Deresh Chai, as we seek life. Shalom.